This is a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. Go to allthews.3cr.org.au. as a boy it's four after four you're on in your face on 3cr with james great show well wednesday june 5 was hiv survivors day and this week i had the pleasure of speaking with david menju who's been living with hiv since the 1980s 
David, what was the HIV AIDS epidemic like at the time you were diagnosed in the 80s? Well, it was very uncertain because uh, in 1984, uh, we'd only just started to uh, see deaths. I mean, in America and uh, Europe and so forth, they had had uh, some deaths from AIDS, although they weren't quite sure what was causing it at that stage. So very early days, it wasn't the level of... uh, uh, mortality and grief, of course, that uh, as the 80s unfolded, we had to live with. And what kind of community organising was happening uh, in the 80s when the epidemic well, was first emerging? The AIDS Council in Victoria started uh, in 1983, and I, I remember initially they didn't have anyone to look after, but it was basically to support and look after people with HIV but also the prevention uh, message was going to be the main work that they did for a long time until the burden of caring for people became quite high and they had to uh, attract a lot of volunteers and get government help to uh, uh, you know, help with the nursing side of things. What was the mood in the community like in the 80s when people started getting sick? Oh, very scared. A, a lot of people, and a lot, a lot of it was just uncertain how it was transmitted. Very early on, people were saying it was people who sniffed amyl nitrate who were at risk, which of course is totally wrong. And it wasn't really realised it was sexually transmitted until, oh, 1982, 83. And so, you know, it was very early days. And so a lot of people thought, oh, it's not going to affect us. It's going to happening in America and and of course people were HIV positive in our community and uh, either didn't realise it or we didn't actually know what was causing them to become sick until they put a name on it and I can't remember when HIV was actually called that I think it was initially called human T-cell leukaemia human T-cell leukaemia virus I think because that's what I was diagnosed with I wasn't diagnosed with HIV because that test didn't actually come in until 1985. So, you know, people think, oh, shock horror, the whole thing was... But we were so uncertain, and we didn't know really what was going on until scientists in America in particular, a man called Robert Gallo, and others discovered uh, HIV and said, look, it's sexually transmitted, injecting drug use and mother-to-baby, so... Once we sort of sorted that out, we knew how to prevent it. What was it like for you at the time when you got that diagnosis, considering all the fear and uncertainty in the community? I, I, well, I suppose I was taken aback, needless to say. I, you know, I had a good job and I was quite healthy and when they did all my T-cells, you know, I was close enough to a 1,000, which is very healthy. So I wasn't overly concerned because my doctor said, and this proved to be wrong, he said, well, we think most people won't get AIDS. You'll you'll, uh, end up uh, one in ten people will actually develop the illness. The rest of you will manage to keep it at bay, which was wrong. So for a while I lived in kind of this fool's paradise where I thought I was going to be fine and I wasn't going to get sick, but... You know, as the 80s unfolded and my friends started to get sick, I thought, geez, how can I not eventually get sick? Which, of course, did actually happen in 1989. Tell us about the peer support movement for people living with HIV AIDS and also the empowerment movement and how that evolved. Yes, it was very big early on in America and, of course, in Europe too. Uh, It didn't happen here until... A little bit later, like the late 80s, 1988 was when uh, we first had our meeting to set up a people living with HIV group in Victoria, in Melbourne. Um, And that was uh, uh, basically in response to, you know, the ACT UP and a whole range of activist groups saying people with HIV should have a voice in this. And before that, people were too scared to say anything. They didn't want to be identified. They thought they might lose their jobs, their family would uh, reject them or whatever. You know, it was a a terribly uh, scary thing for the broader society and people were being rejected right, left and centre. It was a horrible time in terms of stigma 
you know, just to say you're HIV positive was a very brave thing to do. And uh, so we needed a group. We needed people around us who could sort, you know, support us, uh, you know, safety in numbers to some degree. And so 1988 was when we really started the people living with HIV AIDS, as you say, peer support model. You mentioned ACT UP. Tell us about their activities and what they were like in the 80s and 90s, especially their militancy. Look, they were a lot of uh, allies and, of course, a lot of positive people too who said, we've got to do something. Governments have to provide uh, research and get treatments happening. They need to support the AIDS Council and the the care work that's needed. And it's a government health crisis. You can't just turn your back on it and say, leave it to the community, which is what they were doing, really, right up until the mid-'80s. It needed that kind of level of community street protests and politicians being mocked whether they liked it or not it had to happen we had to tell politicians this is a serious problem you need to treat uh, this uh, epidemic in different ways than you have in the past you need to respect the gay and lesbian community which of course we'd only got uh, the gay uh, we'd only had it was only legal to be gay uh, in terms of the victorian law from 1981 And so we were sort of a burgeoning community and we didn't have resources, we didn't have the sort of, even what you might call the the credence in the community. And and AIDS came along and forced a whole lot of these issues to be discussed more broadly in the press and in, in community in general. Of course, ACT UP did some great direct actions. Now, I remember once uh, they were at Parliament House in Canberra and one activist uh, famously jumped onto the floor of Parliament when, right. when Bob Hawke and Brian yeah. Howe, I think, yeah. were, were yeah. you know, standing. That must have had an incredible impact on the, on the community insofar as people saying, we're here, we're not going away, yeah. we demand that you do these things to yeah. help us in this epidemic. And the same thing... Uh Maureen Lister was highly embarrassed. I can't remember if it was in Parliament or Parliament Steps, and she cried about it because she knew, uh, you know, that that we were right. And she was the health minister at the time, the Victorian government. So those sort of... uh, Not that I'm saying we, James. I wasn't there, of course. (laughs) No-one wanted to admit they were there because some of the stuff sort of bordered on being illegal, I suppose. But... um, yeah, yeah, I think there was this compassion in the community. People realised what was being done was necessary and, you know, it did raise uh, a lot of consciousness in the community. Some people hated us because, you know, I suppose it's sometimes personal property might have not been destroyed, but, you know, people might have crossed a few barriers they shouldn't have, such as jumping down on the floor of Parliament. Which and the floral clock. And the floral clock, you're right, you've got a good memory, James. Yes, that's right, the floral clock was destroyed and there was such an outcry. The press was sort of, how dare these vandals attack the floral clock? And some of the politicians reacted badly as if, you know, this was an institution or something, when, of course, the flowers... Uh, from my understanding, the people who did it had found out from the gardeners that it was going to be replaced the following day anyway. It was not a big deal, but, you know, it's amazing how you can have this confected outrage about things like that sometimes. You mentioned Maureen Lister, who was Health Minister in Victoria in the Kerner government in the in the 90s, crying on the steps of Parliament House. I think that was over a uh, debate about the closure of Fairfield Hospital. Eventually, right. of course, was, Kennett yeah. did close that hospital, uh, which provided great care to people with HIV AIDS. Do you think that closure was the right decision in retrospect? Many people would say no, really. At the time, I wasn't. I was very much... You know, Maureen gave in at that time and she kept Fairfield open. So, you know, that was successful advocacy and it gave people a little bit better uh, conditions for a couple of years because Fairfield was... 50% of the patient loads was people with HIV and we were looked at. We were given royal treatment. It was beautiful. We had rooms to ourselves... We had very experienced staff in infectious diseases. It was stigma-free environment, really, and it was sort of like our own little 
world away from the rest of the world out there at Fairfield. So, look, you know, as long as... A couple of extra years, a lot of people would say was very grateful for it. A lot of people felt very grateful for that. But in the long term, I think being at the Alfreds, uh, you know, being necessary, we've had the resources of a large hospital... We've we managed to get Fairfield House, which is the continuing care unit, uh, set up there. That was part of the deal of the transfer, uh, and that's still there today. It looks after people who need more long-term uh, care. So, yes, I think in the long term, um, the Alfred's been very responsive to our needs. I, I sit on some committees there, and people with HIV really do get a say in the way the hospitals run. So... You know, I think in the long term I'd have to say it, it was for the, for the best because they weren't going to pour lots of resources into Fairfield, I don't think. Just going back to the 80s and 90s, tell us about the treatment buyers clubs that existed. And I know some yeah. people had rooms full of treatments, all kinds of herbal treatments yeah. and weird and wonderful things. Well, people have to understand that there were no decent treatments at all uh, that uh, doctors could prescribe for, for HIV until, well, I'd argue that even not really until 1995, but some of the early ones like AZT really did dreadful damage to my body. It's, it's highly debatable uh, whether they help keep me alive or if, in fact, the dreadful wasting of my arms and legs and my muscles and uh, even the fat off my face and so forth, how, whether that was as much caused by AZT as the virus itself. But uh, it was a combination of both. It wasn't the answer. And uh, a lot of people wouldn't take it and it actually put them off HIV treatments for uh, some of the better ones that started coming along in the early 90s. They wouldn't take them because they saw what it did to people like me. You know, we were kind of like scarecrows. I don't mind, I hate to say it, but it's true. But, you know, we looked, you know, sunken faces and, you know, skinny bodies. It was a wasting disease, really, and uh, it's a horrible time to remember back to, really. Absolutely. But, of course, it achieved so much social change and the epidemic has, has changed so much. And, of course, this week we've had Survivor's Day, mm-hmm. uh, which is a wonderful testament to people like you, David, who have, who have survived and done so much activism for the community that's delivered so much. Oh, thank you, James. How yes. would you describe the change that's happened? Oh, it's monumental. It's, well, it's life-changing. It's, it's made a huge difference to... Uh, you know, the, the big risk groups, you know, like gay men, I'm not saying it's only gay men, we know the epidemic's changing, it's affecting different groups uh, now, but, but certainly, you know, 70, 75% of infections are still with gay men. So it has, it has changed the dynamics in the gay community now to know that your virus is undetectable, meaning you can't pass the virus on if you are taking your treatments regularly and the virus is undetectable in your blood, which means it's not circulating in your blood. You still have virus hiding away in lymph glands and so forth, and we still need a cure. But it's quite, quite a revolution to think that now I cannot pass that virus on to someone else. That is just the most amazing thing. And on top of that, we're all living uh, pretty much without AIDS. It's very unusual to get a person develop an AIDS-defining illness now because the treatments are so good, uh, they keep illness at bay in most people. You know, occasionally you'll have someone who doesn't know they're HIV positive, which is why we always argue that people should test, you know, frequently. If they don't know they're positive and then their immune system becomes so weak because the T-cells are working away, they're doing their damage and they don't know it, then those people are likely, it could be more likely to develop AIDS. But, you know, even if you get it at the 11th hour, if you get what I'm saying, you can stop it. So, really, there's no excuse these days for people not to, if they're, you know, having any kind of risk behaviour, to get tested and uh, take treatments as soon as they can if they are positive because we know that as long as 
If you delay, you are doing damage to your body in terms of uh, reducing your T cells, which are the marker of your immune system. So, you know, people these days have the tools to prevent HIV. There's a thing called PrEP that people can take now that means that if they have unprotected sex, then they won't get HIV either. It's very unusual for that for a person to catch it. I mean, some people talk about... Some people have managed to get HIV regardless, even though they take PrEP, but it's a very tiny percentage. So PrEP is really uh, an important thing to help people prevent it, but for people who have HIV, if they're on treatments, they too can prevent it from being passed on, but their health, you know, the people like me who were death's door, as you would know, James, you knew me then, were very sick and looked like, you know, we only had months in some case to live. And when these new treatments come along in the um, mid-90s, 96, you saw people, you know, they called it the Lazarus Syndrome. People were coming back. They came back, their health was restored. They put on weight, uh, you know, and I'm still here. <laughs> so, what was that transition like, going from uh, thinking I'm going to die to actually I'm going to live a bloody long time? Well, James, I have to be honest, and other people have said this, so I have to, you know, admit it. I was a bit manic. You know, my body was sort of like celebrating. It was like being on champagne the whole time. I felt uh, this incredible restoration in my myself. But psychologically, I kind of adapted to this low-level coping kind of thing. And as soon as I started to get more energy and... I actually was a bit manic. People used to have to say, David, slow down. And that's something that I saw happen in other people too. It was a, a kind of like a restoration that almost came too quickly. None of us expected it to be so complete. David Menadieu, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you on 3CR today. Thank you so much. You too, James. Thanks a lot. Cheers. Okay, bye. Bye.
Vista there, Marty Real. You're listening to 3CR Radio. I do have Michael Traegar in the studio. Michael is from the Burnett Institute. Michael, you're the lead author in a study that's looking at men on PrEP and an increase in sexually transmitted infections among them here in Victoria, but it's not related to condoms. Yeah, that's right. Um, thanks for having me. So... In this study, we followed almost 3,000 gay and bisexual men who were enrolled in the PrepEx study, and we monitored their STI diagnoses. So we looked at chlamydia, gonorrhea, and syphilis. And one of the advantages of this study was we were actually able to go back and look at retrospective uh, diagnosis history when men were before they started PrEP. And this gave us good longitudinal data to kind of say, you know, from when men aren't on PrEP to when they start, what are the changes in STI diagnoses? And what are they? Yeah, sure. So we did observe an increase in STI diagnoses, but most of the increase could be explained by an increase in testing frequency. So the men on the study, um, the participants in the study, were getting tested every three months for STIs, which for, uh, for a lot of participants was an increase in their testing frequency from before they were using PrEP. So obviously the more you test, the more you're going to find and the more you're going to diagnose. And the more you diagnose means the quicker you get treated and the more um, quicker you become susceptible again to STIs. So is basically this study showing that the reason why there's an increase in STIs among guys on PrEP is because they're not using condoms? Is that why? Yeah, so it's a little bit more complicated than that, I would say. So after we adjusted for testing frequency, we still did see an increase, about a 20% increase, which we would say is probably only a modest increase. But then when we looked at some of the reasons, we, you know, we asked um, participants to fill out a survey every, survey every three months and we asked them about their condom use and the number of partners they have, their age, all sorts of things. And in the adjusted model, we actually found that condom use was not a significant predictor of STI risk. So whether you said you always use condoms, half the time use condoms or never, really did not affect how likely you were to get an STI. The things that really stood out to influence STI risk were the number of partners you had, whether you reported group sex, and and also younger age, so younger guys were more at risk. So what lessons does this study tell us that could be used for sexual health campaigns targeting men who have sex with men? Yeah, for sure. So another interesting thing we found that, you know, STIs were not evenly spread across the cohort. So more than half of participants were not diagnosed with an STI at all. So the majority of STIs actually occurred in a smaller subset of men who were experiencing repeat infections. So this tells us, you know, for future STI prevention campaigns, we can really be, you know, focusing in on a smaller group of men and having a greater population level effect. Were there any STIs in particular that were the most common? Uh, yeah, so chlamydia was the most common. And when we looked at um, anatomical site, we saw that rectal infections uh, were the most common infections. And is that typical with STIs generally among the men who have sex with men population? I imagine it would be, especially the chlamydia. Yeah, exactly. Even though the rates um, were higher, you know, it's important to keep in mind that these men were, who, uh, were men who were starting PrEP early. They were early adopters of PrEP. They were probably already at a higher risk. Um, but yeah, the same sorts of patterns um, in terms of the, the anatomical site. So how many guys did you study and over what time frame? Yes, so um, there was, in the whole study, there was over 4,000 participants, um, but we looked at just under 3,000 who had available STI testing data. Um, the average follow-up was just over a year, so 14 months. Um, but yeah, the study ran for almost two years. And were there any trans men involved in the study? I imagine there probably were. Yeah, there were a few. There were a few um, men and women and trans and gender diverse people. I think there was about 15... In the study, yeah. Wow, okay. And um, were there any aspects of this study that surprised you? Yeah, I mean, for sure, the, the fact that condom use was not a significant predictor of STI risk, you know, that's historically been one of the biggest um, campaigns, you know, maintaining condom use to prevent STIs. But we've seen over the past, you know, almost decade, a consistent decrease um, in condom use among gay and bisexual men. So this kind of leads us to believe that, you know, the increase that we saw after starting PrEP, the reasons for the increase are probably a little bit more complicated than just people are using condoms less. So was it mainly STI infections because of anal sex or was there a high rate of infections because of oral sex as well? Yeah, it's sort of hard to um, disentangle this, but there were also high rates of um, oral infections as well, so throat infections. Yeah, right. Um, So what's next for you? I mean, this is part of your PhD study. Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, How do you feel? You must feel like a a huge pall is lifted. Yeah, it's great. It was really uh, exciting to work with the PrepEx team um, and work with some really great community members who, you know, helped get the study up and running. Uh, It really sort of paves the way for what I want to research is, you know, different STI prevention strategies. So now that we have these data and we know that we can focus STI prevention strategies, you know, to men who are experiencing repeat infections, what sort of strategies are going to have the best effect in reducing STI rates? Any thoughts on that? 
Yes. So um, there's been some research, early research done on um, PEP and PrEP for STIs, so taking antibiotics as a prophylaxis. Um, although it's not approved yet uh, in Australia, we know that some men are already doing this. Um, really? Tell us more about that. Yes. Yeah, so uh, it's the data is not... Uh, there's only early data to suggest that some men are doing it, um, but we know that there's high acceptability. Some men are willing to do it. They're interested in doing it. Um, so we, we would be interested to see also doing some modelling work to see what is the optimal number of men that could be using prophylaxis to kind of affect population STI rates. That's fascinating. So there's obviously quite a few doctors that are working with men on this. Uh, yeah. You don't hear much about that. Yeah, that's right. I mean, as I said, there's only been a few small studies um, in other countries, but it would be really good to kind of do a larger um, acceptability study or, or even a pilot study in Australia looking at how um, this could work here. So your STI study, it's been getting a bit of media. What's the reaction been like? Um, I think the reaction has been pretty good. I mean, a lot of the messaging that we've tried to put out there is, you know, that these men are really engaged in sexual health care and they're getting tested quite frequently. So it would be it's kind of obvious that we're going to observe an increase in STIs anyway. So I think it's going to be really important now that the study is over and PrEP has moved to the PBS and there's going to be a lot of people using PrEP in, in rural areas, especially maintaining that high level of engagement in care and high-frequency STI testing and monitoring is going to be really important. Was there um, much data available to you about men in regional areas in relation to this STI study? No, unfortunately, not, not at the time, um, but it would be really interesting to try and get some of that data and expand our coverage um, of our surveillance systems. So what demographic data did you have on study participants, if any? Um, so really just the basics. So we had the age, um, where they were accessing PrEP, and we also asked about their risk behaviour before accessing PrEP, whether they had used PrEP before the study, how long they'd been using it for. Um, yeah. And were there any age groups in particular uh, that had a high rate of STIs? Yeah, so the highest rate we observed was between the ages of 25 and 35. Um, yeah, those men had the highest rates of STIs. And what's the factor behind that, do you think? Um, we would say that's probably to do with sexual mixing patterns and sexual networks. What sexual mixing mean? So it means uh, who you're more likely to have sex with. So basically your risk of getting STI really depends on who you're having sex with, when you're having sex, and what your sexual partner's risk of STIs are. So there's a lot of research, I think, um, left for that field to look at sexual networks and sexual mixing patterns. And did you have much information about who people were having sex with? No, not really. Uh, it's quite difficult to get that information yeah, um, and to be able to link it across different people. But I think it would be very interesting to research in the future. Absolutely. Now, you've just come back from overseas. Was that linked to this study at all? Uh, no, I was actually at a conference uh, in Greece, which was... The conference was about HIV observational data sets, so using observational data to try and um, make causal inferences. And what did you? Um, what was the striking thing that you learned from that conference? What was the what was the, the the news from it, if you like? Well, actually, some of the discussions we had was really about, especially among men starting prep. We can see that an S, that STIs are going up, but how can we really attribute that to prep use alone? You know, we've had you know U equals U and treatment as prevention, a lot more awareness and knowledge around them. Um, HIV incidence has been going down for a long time. Condom use has been going down for a long time. So it's actually quite difficult using our data to say that PrEP use was what was actually contributing to the increase in STI incidence. So we're discussing different methods, um, statistical methods, how we can kind of disentangle that. Wow. So, Michael, if people want to get more information about your study at Burnett Institute, where do they go? Yeah, of course. So the Burnett website, so burnett.edu.au. Um, there's also a lot of information about the other research we do there and also the Alfred um, Health website. Awesome stuff. Michael Traeger from Burnett Institute. Thanks heaps for chatting today and congratulations on your PhD. It's awesome. And your research. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me.
the gossip there. Diamond Store Diamond, 20 to 5 on In Your Face on 3CR with James. I'm joined in the studio by performer, gamer, artist, creatrix Tiara. Hello. Uh, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. It's great to have you on board. It's been a while, so I thought we'll get we'll get Tiara back to have a bit <laughs> of a chat. Look, um, You can't get rid of me. Look, you've done some work recently with the Free Play Independent Games Festival, and you're a bit of a gamer, so tell us about that. I mean, you know, there's all the things about fake gamer girls or whatever, which is besides that. Um, Free Play Independent Games Festival is the longest running independent games festival in the world. It's wow. been around for like 15 years. It's the 15th anniversary. And it used to be a festival run by Next Wave and now it's become independent. And the goal of Free Play is to look at not just like games, say video games, people just kind of assume that's all games is, but also the notion of play and interactivity and games culture, which is what I'm really more into is less about, oh, you know, I spent like 10 hours a day playing blah, blah, blah game, but more about seeing how games and interactive media can be used to explore certain issue or express something about the world or about yourself. And I first found the power of that many, many, many years ago. Um, I was part of a game jam in San Francisco. Game jam is like an event where a bunch of people are put in the room together for like 48, 72 hours and you just make a game. You might not even know anyone in the room, but you just come up with a game on the spot. And I had this pitch for a game if, where it's like, papers please, but from the perspective of the immigrant. Papers please is like this well-known indie game where you play like a Soviet-era immigration agent. And so your, your goal is to like look through everyone's passports and make sure they're like correct and there's like this plot line about refugees or whatever. And I got so annoyed by this game. I'm like, oh, I don't want to sympathize with this immigration agent. Fuck off. <laughs> As someone who's immigrated a few times and immigrated to my existence. So I just had this pitch like, I want to make a game from the other side. But I, my coding skills are from the late 90s. And I don't know what the kids are doing right now. But two people came up to me who have code programming experience and say we want to make this game with you so i wrote the content and we make this game called here's your fucking papers which is basically a bunch of highly annoying mini puzzles related to immigration like one is like a maze and you have to escort a piece of paperwork but it keeps getting caught behind walls and barriers and stuff just go pick it up and then there was another one where it's another maze but all the walls are invisible every time you hit one it's like oh i'm sorry you need five thousand dollars oh i'm sorry you need to give us 20 years of your family you know like all this ridiculous paperwork you need to send in and we demoed the game at the end of the game jam and seeing everyone's faces as they saw how excruciating the game really was, that was like the most visceral reaction I've gotten. Like I've talked about immigration my entire life through I've made art about it, I've performed about it, I've written about it. But that was maybe like the first time I saw people actually respond in the way that felt like they get it. Like most people kind of, Get that it's frustrating intellectually, but if they haven't been in the system, they don't know. They can only like say, like, oh, that sounds tedious. But because through this game, even though it's not literally about immigration, like you're not filling out forms in this game, but because it depicts the emotional experience of it, of immigration, of the tedium, of the process, and that people could feel what I felt going through all of this. And that was like when I realized, oh, there is, there is a potential there for games to be this medium, for people to really understand something that they may not be able to really grok some other way. And so Free Play as a festival likes to look at that kind of aspect of games making. So not necessarily, sometimes the technical stuff, like how do you do the skill? That skill. But also there's a lot that's in general about like culture and how do we tell the stories that we tell? And, you know, this past Free Play, the theme was introspection. So people looking at themselves and how they relate to the games world. Like I moderated a panel about aftercare and the emotional drop that happens when you release a big project and how that works across different fields and how people take care of themselves. So, yeah, so I was volunteer manager at Free Play and I appreciate that space as being one where you don't have to be a gamer, capital G, gamer. Like you don't even need to have anything to do with games, but they really want to welcome those other worlds in and see how the arts, the community, or whatever can incorporate play into their work. Of course, tonight you're heading to the meat market for Return to Escape from <laughs> Woomera. Yes. What's all that about? So Return to Escape so Escape from Woomera is a game that was made some time ago 
and it's sort of like an uh, a adventure puzzle game where you play a refugee trying to escape from the Woomera detention center. And it's based on a true experience. Like I think they interviewed like actual refugees who were there and someone gave them like the layout of the space. So it's based on what they actually refugees actually experienced being in the detention center. And it was so controversial that the Australia council like funded it and then like kind of, unfunded it or like unassociated themselves from it and did not fund any more games related things until this year when they funded free play free play this year was the first games thing australia council has funded seeing escape from umara so that game was controversial because one side was like oh you know you're trivializing refugee experiences by being into a game and then the other side was like oh this is a controversial topic and how dare you like air our dirty laundry about detention centers and you're making us sound worse than really are, blah, blah, blah. And so Return to Escape for Umura is a project by a Sydney group called Applespiel where they have the game being played and people in the audience can play the game. And while the game is being played, they have a panel of people commentating on the game but also like uh, talking about the issues the games bring up. So I was part of the Sydney run of this at Carriageworks last year. I was on two panels. One of them was with Julian Burnside. That was a fun panel. He was, he was like, you know, he's very sweet. He's giving all this like really intellectual information about refugee laws and the history of Australia and all that. And I'm just like super salty, slightly tipsy. So being an immigrant sucks. And I'm sure being a refugee sucks even more. I don't know how we were in the same panel together. And then, like, the second panel was me and a couple of other immigrant artists talking about, like, how we deal with the topic of migration in our art. So I'm not sure who's on the panel in the Melbourne show. I'm going there mainly as an audience member because the producers reached out. I said to bring it to Melbourne. They want to come. Uh, but, yeah, I'm, I'm interested to see who they, if the format has changed. And, you know, the topic has become important again because of all that's happening in immigration, in refugee detention centers right now. And it's even though Escape from Umara was like, what, made 15 or something years ago, like a while ago, it's somehow still, still relevant. Which is scary, isn't it? That things haven't changed that much. Yeah. Like, you know, the only thing that makes the game dated is the graphics. And, you know, like as a game, it was interesting for me as someone who has some experience with the design of games. Part of me just thinking like, oh, if you make this the way like escape games were made, like you could make this question a little better. And But also it's just like in in some way that the content hasn't necessarily changed, you know? It sounds like a great kind of exercise in activism, you know. It sounds like it really kind of evokes empathy with refugees who, you know, were in Mumura, for example. And that's a good thing to be encouraging. Yeah, so that was one of the sort of uh, things about Escape for Mumura that's really split people. Like some people, including some refugee activists and refugees themselves, brought up what you said, that it was a good way to build empathy but then there were other some people who thought it was trivializing or minimizing what we actually go through because the idea of like oh it's not it's just a game to you it's not really a game these are people's real lives here so yeah it'll be um now that it's a topic again what apple spiel is doing is trying to investigate whether there is space for something like escape for Woomera in today's climate would this same game be able to exist now? Like, would you update it to make it more relevant now? Or, you know, like now... I guess it'd yeah. be offshore now, wouldn't it? The escape from oh. Nauru. Yeah, probably, yeah. And then the government would be like, ah, you are revealing state secrets. We don't allow... We don't even allow people to be at Nauru or Manus who are not refugees. But yeah, it'll be interesting to see like what the contemporary version of that would be. Of course, you're also involved in the Quippings project, uh, and I understand they're taking applications for uh, a project for queer artists with disabilities. Tell us about that. Sure. So Quippings is a collective of LGBT artists with disabilities. They've been running in Melbourne for like the past decade, and they've done shows for Midsummer, for Fringe, they've performed them all. It's like a, a rotating cast of people who are spoken word artists, uh, cabaret performers, and so on, just making work about this disability, but away from the whole like disability porn thing, like, oh, I'm so inspirational, or I'm so oppressed because I'm disabled. It, just, it started out originally by Cass Duncan and company as a way to 
for disabled artists to really talk about like their bodies and their sexualities and their desires in a way that most spaces won't let them because of this idea that disabled people can't possibly have sexual interests. And it's sort of grown into like this sort of well-respected institution. And this year we got some funding to put on a show which is going to be very different to what normally Quippies normally does, which is we are looking for artists of all sorts of backgrounds, so like performers, uh, visual artists, designers, right, whatever. And we're going to pair people with different skills together. So imagine like a dancer paired with a writer or like a 3D artist paired with a musician and see what happens. Because that's my current favorite genre of YouTube video is like pairing different artists together. Like rock climbers learn how to pole dance or a fine artist and a graffiti artist need uh, try to do uh, just had this random idea for a project and Jack, Jackie Brown, my co-producer and Kath were like, yeah, let's go for it. So yes, we are currently taking applications. If you look up Quipping's Facebook page, uh, Quipping's Disability Unleashed, there is a post with a form you can fill out. We're taking applications until mid next month. And, you know, we take all experience backgrounds. You don't have to be like super skilled necessarily. If you're already, if you're disabled, any disability include invisible ones, uh, chronic health. We get a lot of people who are like, I'm not disabled enough. Like, we're not asking for your medical information. Just like, if you consider yourself some level disabled, it's fine. And you are queer or gender diverse or trans. Um, yeah, send in a form and we'll see if we can pay you up with someone. Of course, Tiara, you're very well known to many of our listeners uh, for your act, Queer Lady Magician, <laughs> where you actually do magic on stage, which is pretty incredible. What can we expect in the future? From Ooh. Queer Lady Magician, your alter ego. My alter ego. Oh, that's interesting because, like, we did finish two shows, one for Fringe last year and then the Midsummer Run, and then went all right. Um, the magician is having a bit of a break at the moment. Like, I might pop up at different random events to do little small sets. Um, yeah, it's, it's mostly in a, a bit of a break. Like, I feel like we've done the origin story, but I have some ideas for a sequel. A sequel about, you know, what if the magician just really gave in to their manipulative side and so far. The black just, magician, the evil magician, is that the what you're saying? The dark magician, yeah. Well, well let's see. I mean, it's, it's idea stage at the moment, but but we'll see. And I just, I found out recently that there's a TV show called Pen and Tellers Fool Us, where like magicians compete to fool this Pen and Teller, this well-known magicians with their acts. And they, it's American, but they're holding auditions for Australian magicians at the Gold Coast later this year. And I really want to audition. Mostly so I can do my cups and balls with menstrual cups trick and I don't expect to actually fool Penn and Teller. They'll figure out what I'm doing in five seconds. But just to see if I can get menstrual cups on air and see what happens. So maybe that'll be where Queer Lady Magician shows up on TV in America. Wow. Now you mentioned your origin show. Tell us about that for listeners that might not be familiar with it. So the first Queer Lady Magician show tells the story of my origins of magic like I it was my childhood love and then I tried to do a show when I was younger and it didn't work out so well and that killed my love of magic because I grew up with the idea that if you ever fail you can't ever try again like fail is not an option was that like a cultural view that was entrenched oh, into you in Malaysia much yeah like in school constantly it was if you fail your life is over you can never fail it exams you can never fail at anything and so you had to be immediately perfect or at least like good enough that you won't stumble, otherwise don't even try. And so that stuck with me. And people were like, well, you're already like skilled in other things, just focus on that. Like, okay, fine. Um, and it wasn't until like many years later, I lived in San Francisco for a few years and met this lady named Blake Maxim, who turns out to also be a professional children's magician. And she got my love of magic back. But then, you know, the, the, the show also talks about like my tumultuous history with my ex, who also happens to be how I met Blake, because she was a friend of Blake's. And, you know, how that, the the consequence of being emotionally manipulated by my ex and by other people and having to navigate that with magic being an art of manipulation. (laughs) And so, you know, I go through like kind of this, it's very meta, it's like this emotional journey of trying to get back into magic, but dealing with all of this, like, oh, I've done it so long, what if I fail imposter syndrome? And then also, ah, I don't know if this is with my values, I don't want to manipulate people. And there's this plot line about 
my assistant who is a white guy and he's actually trying to kill me and I don't realize this until I get killed. And I come back and then I kill him and it's great. But yeah, so... It's, all this is happening on stage. All this is happening on stage. So it's like, you know, it's like the superhero origin story. It's like, how do I become the queer lady magician by going through this trial of getting past you know, internal messaging about not being good enough, but also like societal messaging about like, oh, well, you are a queer, gender diverse person of color. You shouldn't be on stage. No one wants you to do right. No one wants you to do anything and assert yourself and actually getting through that and being like, look, even if I'm not like the world's best magician, at least I I am entitled to like, to try. Uh, at least it's enough for me to be here and present myself and present a different idea of what stage magic could be. And so many people responded to that. You know, I met so many people who are like, oh, I used to love stage magic as a kid, but then I got tired of all this like boring white man and I used to try it. I don't think I'm good enough to try, but they at least saw something in the show. But it's like, you know what? It's worth like trying again. And now I have a model for someone who resembles me closer than like any random white guy. Uh, yeah, so it's it's been interesting to see the response to it. Like, I just started with like, ha, huh, it wouldn't be funny to do something as a queer lady magician. And then it just like blew up. <laughs> Fantastic. Tiara, we're out of time. I could chat with you all day. It's awesome <laughs> what you're doing. It's arts activism in my view. Thank you so much for talking to us today on 3CR. Uh, thanks for having me.
In Your Face would like to thank Thornhaber Health for their financial support of this program. Thornhaber Health envisions a healthy future for our gender, sex and sexuality diverse communities. A future without HIV and a future where all people live with dignity and respect. To find out more about them, search Thornhaber Health on your search engine or find them on Facebook. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.